The Old Testament reading for today comes from Daniel chapter 12, and the sermon text for today is Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Let's go now to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Daniel chapter 12, we'll read the whole chapter. At that time shall Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people, uh, shall arise, Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, How long shall it be till the time of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? And he said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand." And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, which is our sermon text for today. There we read, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So far the reading of God's holy word, we do pray that the Lord would give us understanding and also the ability to keep it. About a week ago, our family uh, was driving across town, and we were listening to some bluegrass music. That's probably not how you expected this sermon to begin. Also, I probably need to say a word as to why we were listening to bluegrass music. Um, My kids are taking lessons right now. Kalia and David are taking guitar lessons. McKenna's working on the ukulele. I even picked up the mandolin. I'm no good, but 
I'm toying around with it. And so bluegrass music is a good choice if you want to hear some in, inspirational finger-picking, you know. And, uh, and so we were listening to it, and we were enjoying it and having a good time. But as we were enjoying the music, a song came on with some lyrics that were quite disturbing. Uh, in this song, the artist was complaining about his upbringing within the church, and he was most direct about it. He, he was recalling how, as a boy, he heard so often of the flames of hell while in church. Uh, He was hardly tall enough to see over the pew, he said, and yet the flames of hell seemed to him to be so high. According uh, to his lyrics, uh, whether it is true or not, I I really don't know, the threat of hell was used in that church to inspire good behavior in the children. Uh, That's how hell was used in that particular church. Um, Truth be told, the song was so cynical and so negative towards the church, I was very tempted to turn it off. That was my first impulse. But, I, but instead, I said, kids, are you listening to this? And then we uh, talked about the lyrics afterwards. It seems to me that there is a ditch on both sides of the road when it comes to the subject of hell and how we handle it within the church. I'm sure there are some churches that talk constantly about it. In some churches, you'll hear a lot of the flames of hell, but very little of the cross of Christ. You'll hear more about the wrath of God than His mercy and grace. And in some churches, hell is discussed with such emotion and with such intensity and with such threatenings that you begin to wonder if the point of it all is not just to provoke fear for the sake of provoking fear. And I think it is a shame when the flames of hell are used to fear monger in order to promote morality within people instead of to point to Christ Jesus. Indeed, whenever we talk of this subject, it should be toward this end to promote love for God through faith in Christ. Some churches, I'm sure, have fallen into the ditch that is on that side of the road. But many churches today have slid into the ditch on the other side of the road. And what they do is they minimize hell. They're unwilling to say anything about it at all in some instances. And if they do say something about hell, uh, they minimize it in one way or another. They try to explain it away sometimes altogether. I I suspect they do it because they want the respect of the world. Uh, They hear songs like the one that we heard uh, only a week or so ago. And they feel ashamed of the doctrine of hell. They hear the voice of the critics and the skeptics and the non-believing. They hear them belittle belief in hell as something superstitious, something that is old-fashioned, something that is unenlightened, something even that is cruel. And instead of thinking carefully and biblically about the issue, instead they blush. And therefore they abandon the doctrine of hell in part because they want the approval of the world around them. But friends, we speak of hell... Because the scriptures speak of it, and we believe the scriptures to be true. We speak of hell because Christ himself spoke of it, and we believe Christ to be true. And if you believe Christ and the scriptures to be the word of God, the question becomes not how could we speak of hell, but how could we not then speak of it if we believe these things to be true? If we believe the word of God to be true, then how could we not warn of hell? For the scriptures do constantly warn of it, and so We are to say what the scriptures say, not to scare people to straighten up and to live moral lives necessarily, but to warn them of that which we believe to be true based upon our faith in God and his word. And our prayer is that men and women, boys and girls, would do more than be afraid, but instead that they would develop within themselves a true understanding of the severity of their sin, that they would develop within themselves a holy reverence and fear 
of God and that they would develop within themselves a right understanding of Christ. Our prayer is that the sinner would come to see what their sins truly deserve, that they would come to love God and that they would come to run to Him, trusting not in their own righteousness, but in the atoning work and righteousness of Christ that is received by faith alone. I understand that some, maybe many, after hearing what the Scriptures have to say about hell, will still harden their heart against God. Some, after receiving teaching that is presented with even much humility and with much winsomeness and compassion, uh, teaching that is delivered for all the right reasons, uh, that is to point people to Christ the Savior, some will still harden their hearts against God, and they will complain as this musician complains, saying, it only made me afraid, and it only drove me away. And when they run from God, they will also find some way to, to dismiss the thought of of final judgment and eternal punishment. You have to do that then. If you were going to run away from Christ, you have to find some way to explain these things away. Uh, They will dismiss it as myth. They will demean it as superstitious. They will explain it away as something that Jesus himself would never have taught, for he is love. You hear these kinds of explanations, don't you, coming from the world. But brothers and sisters, we cannot control how men and women respond to what the Scriptures say concerning the future and final judgment but we can be faithful to say what the Scriptures say. And we could also pray that the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to produce a godly and holy kind of fear in the hearer, one that causes a sinner to see his or her sin for what it is, an atrocious offense against the God who made them, something that is deserving of His wrath. And we can pray that this fear of God would cause the sinner to run not away from Him, but toward Him, looking to Jesus the Christ as Savior and Lord. Because in and through Him, the grace of God is found. Do you agree with my assessment of these things, brothers and sisters? We must say something about hell, for the Scriptures speak of it. We must be faithful to say what God has said, even though the world scoffs at it. And indeed, we do trust that the Lord is able to use the sobering threat of judgment to draw His elect unto Himself through faith in Christ Jesus. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, describes the final judgment of all who are not in Christ. The scene is sobering. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. Uh, The throne is great, It, it is large, and in this context, it is also ominous. It is a white throne symbolizing the purity and the holiness of the one who sits upon it. It is white symbolizing also that the judgments that are about to proceed from it are perfectly just and also true. Uh, John also saw him who was seated on it, but notice that here he makes no attempt uh, to describe what he saw. We are to remember the description that we received of God enthroned in Revelation chapter 4 though. Uh, There we read in verse 2, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. From the throne came flashings of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And so you can sense that John is here straining to describe what he saw. He is here reaching to the very limits of human language as he attempts to describe the glory and splendor of God enthroned. 
in Revelation 2011, we find this awesome word that from his presence, from the presence of God enthroned, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Can you visualize it, brothers and sisters, what this looks like? From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. Here we have a description of the destruction that will come upon all of creation on the last day when God does judge. We've been given a taste of the destruction that will come upon all of creation on the last day a few times now in the book of Revelation. It's been mentioned over and over again. Remember that when the sixth seal was opened in Revelation chapter 6, John saw a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its fruit, its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So there we did have a glimpse of this final destruction or this dissolution of the, new, of the heavens, the first heavens and the first earth. Uh, when the seventh bowl was poured out in Revelation chapter 16, we have a similar description. A loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe." It sounds also similar to what Peter did say in 2 Peter 3, 7 and also in verse 10. He describes the same thing with these words. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now this is the event that Revelation 20 verse 11 refers to with the words, from his presence earth and sky fled away. Earth and sky, the the created world is is burned up and is dissolved, if you will. Uh, What exactly this will look like, I do not know. We have to remember that we are in the book of Revelation and it is filled with symbolic language, but you get the point of it, don't you? that everything is going to, in some way or another, be destroyed or made an end of. There is going to be a great destruction that comes even upon the heavens and the earth on the last day. Some commentators do insist that this is not an absolute annihilation of the first heavens and the first earth, Uh, but the destruction of it in the sense of a renovation of it. It's a renovation of the current heavens and earth, they say. And I tend to agree with uh, them that the, the extreme language used here in Revelation is meant to communicate that the old is passing away and the new is being established. Uh, Hendrickson puts it this way in his commentary, not the destruction or annihilation, but the renovation of the universe is indicated here. It will be a dissolution of the elements with great heat, a regeneration, a restoration of all things, and a deliverance from the bondage of corruption. No longer will this universe be subject to vanity. And so whatever the mechanics of it are, 
The principle is clear. The first heaven and earth will on the last day pass away. And why will they pass away? It is so that the new heavens and the new earth can be established. In Revelation chapter 21 verse 1 we read, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Notice that everything in this passage, though, comes to focus upon the judgment of the wicked. For that is one thing that will also happen on the last day. Those not in Christ will be judged and eternally condemned. And so, first of all, we have the description of the dissolution of the first heaven and the first earth. They flee away and no place is found for them. But everything does come to focus upon the judgment of the wicked. You have heard me say it before, uh, that the last day is going to be a full day. It's going to be a busy day. A lot will happen when Christ returns. Uh, And the book of Revelation has been providing us with multiple perspectives on the time of the end. And when we gather up all that the book of Revelation has to say, along with the rest of the Old and New Testaments, and bring it all together, it looks something like this. Prior to the return of Christ, All who belong to Christ will be preserved by Christ in this world as His church finds herself under constant assault from the evil one. The evil one is active, but he is defeated and he is restrained. Christ is now enthroned in heaven with all authority in heaven and earth belonging to Him. He will build His church and He will preserve His people. The beast, that is political powers that persecute the false prophet, that is false teachers, and the harlot who symbolize the seductiveness of the world will be used by the evil one to fight against the people of God and to urge men and women to abandon the worship of the one true God to worship the things of this world instead. That is what we see all about us even now. These pressures, brothers and sisters, will not decrease, but will increase in the time of the end. The church will find herself under unparalleled assault immediately before Christ comes again. But the Lord will return to do what? To rescue His bride and to judge all who do not belong to Him. It will be on that day when Christ returns bodily, that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. You may call this the rapture if you'd like, but it is not secret, nor is it before some tribulation, but as you could see, it is pre-wrath, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. It will be on that day when Christ returns that the rest, that is, those not in Christ who had gathered to war against Christ and His people, will be slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of Him who is sitting on the horse, and the birds will be gorged with their flesh. That is Revelation chapter 19, verse 21. And so there will be this outpouring of the wrath of God upon those who are living, who do not belong to Him. The bride will be rescued. The bride will not endure the wrath of God poured out, but those who are alive, who are opposing and oppressing the people of God, will have the wrath of God poured out upon them. That is what Revelation chapter 19, verse 20 reveals. And it will be on that day that the devil who had deceived the nations to gather them for battle against the church will be thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever 
and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10. It will be on that day also that the beast and the false prophet will be thrown into this lake of fire. It will be also on that day that the earth and sky will flee from the presence of God. The sky will vanish like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island will be removed from its place. Revelation 20, verse 11, and also 6, 14. It will be on that day that the unrighteous will also be raised from the dead, not to enjoy eternal life, but to go to eternal destruction. It is the final judgment that is in view here. For it will be on that day that the dead, great and small, will stand before the throne and books will be opened and the dead will be judged by what is written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea will give up the dead who are in it. Death and Hades will give up the dead who are in them and they will be judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. This is the event that our passage for today is describing. It is the final judgment or the great white throne judgment. And it will be on that day that the new heavens and new earth are then established. And those who belong to Christ will enjoy the presence of God and Christ in the new heavens and new earth forevermore. And so you understand that it will be a busy day. What do the dispensational premillennialists do except take all of these elements, or many of them at least, and they spread them out over a long period of time? But we are saying no, a clear and simple reading of the New Testament reveals that these are just different aspects of the things that will happen when the Lord returns. And when I say it will be on that day that these things happen, I do not necessarily mean that all of this will be accomplished in one day as we know it, that is in 12 or 24 hours. How long it will actually take for all of this to be accomplished, I do not know. Uh, But the scriptures are clear that these events will happen all at once when Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. Any eschatological system that inserts large gaps of time be it three and a half years or seven years or a thousand years, in in between any of these end times events, is guilty of reading their system into the text. A careful and straightforward reading of the New Testament reveals that all of these things, the bodily resurrection of the just, the rescue of the church, the wrath of God poured out upon the wicked who are alive, the eternal destruction of the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon, the bodily resurrection of the unjust, the dissolution of the first heavens and the First, earth, the great white throne judgment, and the casting of all wicked along with death itself into the lake of fire will happen on the last day when Christ makes all things new. This last day is going to be a full day. A lot will happen when Christ returns to rescue his bride. When will the final judgment happen? It will happen when Christ returns. And who will be judged at the great white throne judgment that is described to us here in Revelation chapter 20? Who will be judged? At the great white throne judgment, Uh, the answer is that all of humanity will be judged at the great white throne judgment. Notice I did not say that all of humanity will be condemned at the great white throne judgment, but I did say that all of humanity will be judged there. The scene is set with a description of all humanity standing before God who is seated on his throne. The general resurrection has happened then. Both the righteous and the wicked are seen here standing in their resurrection bodies. They are no longer just a soul, but they are standing there, having been raised from the dead. Nowhere do the scriptures teach that there will be a bodily resurrection for Christians 
followed by a thousand years, after which there will be a bodily resurrection for those not in Christ. Do you understand what I am saying here? That teaching that there will be a bodily resurrection for Christians, and then a thousand years, and then after that a bodily resurrection for those not in Christ, is nowhere found in in the pages of the New Testament. Instead, the scriptures do plainly teach that when the Lord returns, those who are Christ's who are alive will be caught up to be with him in the air. Those alive who belong not to Christ, but are found warring against Christ and his people, will be slain. But all who are dead will be raised up and will stand before God as whole persons, body and soul, having been reunited at the resurrection. I want you to listen to how simple the words of Christ are concerning this fact in John chapter 5, verses 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, he says, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Do you hear how plain and direct Christ's teaching is on this issue? The hour is coming when this will happen. There will be a great resurrection at the end of time where all who are in the tombs will come out and then having come out they will then be distinguished one from another those who have done good to life those who have done evil to destruction here the distinction is made between those in christ and those not in christ why the premillennialists want to make things more complicated i really don't know There will not be two resurrections, one for the righteous and one for the wicked, separated by a thousand years, but one general resurrection where those in Christ are raised up to go to life and those not in Christ are raised up to go to judgment. It is a consistent testimony that we find both in the Old and New Testaments. Even Daniel chapter 12 did speak of it. Revelation 20 verse 12 describes the effects of this general resurrection. All of humanity, we read, both small and great, is seen by John standing before the great white throne. In in verse 14, we read, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The sea and death and Hades are three ways of referring to the place of the dead. In this present evil age, we experience death. When we die, the soul is separated from the body. The body goes to the grave. But at the end of time, there will be a resurrection, a bodily resurrection of the dead. The sea, death, and Hades will give up the dead. In other words, there will be a resurrection so that body and soul, the body and soul of the individual will be reunited, never to be separated again. Notice that in verse 14, death and Hades are personified and are themselves thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20 verse 14 says it. In other words, death, which is the thing that brings about the separation of body and soul, and Hades, that is to say the grave, the place where those who have died go, will be no more after this great and final resurrection. It will be no more. Uh, This resurrection of the just and unjust at the end of time will bring an end to death and Hades. Isn't that what Paul does say elsewhere, that the last enemy to be defeated is what? Death itself. So from this point onward, all will go on existing as whole 
persons, body and soul, having been reunited by the resurrection at the end of time, and they will exist as such for all eternity. This distinction or this division between body and soul will never happen again. Death and Hades will be no more. The thing that causes the separation, death, will be no more. Neither will there be the grave any longer for bodies to rest in, for it will be no more. People, for all eternity, will exist as whole persons, body and soul, having been reunited. So who will be judged at the great white throne judgment? Well, all of humanity is at first seen there, the resurrection of the dead having, been take, having taken place. But who will be condemned at the great white throne judgment? That's another question altogether, isn't it? And it requires a different answer. The answer is this, it is all not in Christ who will be condemned at the great white throne judgment. Notice that there are two sets of books used to sort out this mass of humanity here in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and following. There are two sets of books. In verse 12 we read, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened. And so a distinction is made between the books that were opened at first and this other book that was opened, which is called here the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in, not the book of life, but in the books that were at first opened according to what they had done. And so a distinction is made between the books and the book of life. In verse 15 we read, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What is the book of life then? It is symbolic, of course. We have to remember where we are. We are in the book of Revelation that communicates truth via symbol. Uh, But this book does, is said to contain the names of all who do belong to Christ. That is what is written in this book, the book of life. Uh, Paul used the phrase in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, when he spoke of two women named Iodia and Syntyche. He wrote this way, together with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers, he described them all as having their names written in the book of life. And so Paul uses this phrase to describe what was true of Christians who were still alive in his day. He is saying these that I am mentioning here, these two women along with Clement and the rest of his fellow workers, they have their names written where? In the book of life. So confident was Paul about that, that he made this declaration. Their faith was true. Their names were written in this book. The phrase actually appears six times in the book of Revelation. In 3.5, the church in Sardis was encouraged with these words. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And so here, the Christians are, are encouraged to persevere and to conquer and to overcome their names being written in the book of life. In 13.8, we learn that it is those not in the book of life who worship the beast. Also, it is there in 13.8 that we learn uh, that this book is called the book of life of the lamb who was slain. And so there it has a longer name attached to it. Uh, but the point in that passage is that it's all who are not in it who do go, do go about worshiping the beast that was just introduced to us there in that passage. It is also here in Revelation 13.8 that we learn that this book of life was written 
before the foundation of the world. In other words, if your name is in this book, it is there not because of something that you have done, but it is there by the decree of God. If your name is written in the, la- the, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, it is there not because you chose Christ, but because God has chosen you. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. In 17.8, the same thing is revealed. Those not in the book of life love the beast, and again the book is said to have been written from the foundation of the world, which is another way of saying before God even created the heavens and the earth. The phrase, the book of life, appears twice in our text today. And lastly, it appears in 2127, where we find this description of the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, we are told. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so, what determines whose name is in the book of life. The decree of God is what determines it. The book of life was written by God before creation. The book of life was written before you and I were even born, before we had done good or evil. The book of life symbolizes then the doctrine of election or foreknowledge or predestination that is talked about elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures. Here in the book of Revelation, we find a symbol of that great and awesome truth that is put so directly elsewhere in Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world so that we, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. That is Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 6. So do you hear how Paul puts it so plainly? He puts it in such a direct way, saying He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And he goes on to say that He, God, predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. But the book of Revelation takes these same truths and symbolizes it with the image of names written in the Lamb's book of life. Those not found in the book of life are here in this passage judged according to what is written in the other books. And what is written in these other books except a record of all that we have ever done? Think of that for a moment. It is symbolic again. God does not keep books because He does not need to. But what is being symbolized here except this truth that God sees all and God knows all and God does not forget He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. While it is true that it is those whose names are not written in the book of life who will be condemned, notice that the basis of their condemnation is not that their names were not written in the book of life, but it is their sinful deeds that serve as the basis for their condemnation. Do you understand what I am saying here? Yes, it is true that in the end it is all who have not been written in the book of life who are cast into the lake of fire, but that is not the basis for their condemnation. Instead, they are condemned, they are eternally judged because of their sin, because of what had been written in these other books. 
and what was written in these other books, it is a record of all that they had ever done. God sees our thoughts, brothers and sisters. He knows even the intentions of our heart. He hears every single word that we speak. He sees every deed, and He remembers it all. That is the truth that is being symbolized by these books that are opened and by which those not in Christ are judged. They are a record of all that we have ever done. And so tell me, friend, do you want to be judged according to that record? Do you want to be judged according to those books? Who would want that? It's amazing to to me that some men actually think themselves to be so good and so righteous that they might actually respond saying, I think I do all right. How blind they are concerning their sin and how blind they are concerning the glory of God, concerning His holiness, His righteousness, and His justice. Men and women, boys and girls, in their sin, think far too highly of themselves and they think far too little of God. Sin has that effect upon us. Not only do we sin, but while we sin, we also deceive ourselves into thinking that our sin is not that bad. Sin produces also blindness and deafness, doesn't it? So that we cannot really see our sin, nor can we hear God's opinion concerning it. This is the effect that sin has upon us. It makes it so that we don't even see it for what it is. But they should be reminded, and here I am reminding them of this fact that God sees all. He even sees the things that are secret to other men, and He has a record of them in His books. Do you want to be judged by that record? Do you really think that you will stand if you think carefully concerning the way that you have talked to your wife? If you think of of the thoughts that you have entertained in your mind, if you think of the intentions of, of your heart, Do you really want to be judged by those books? Brothers and sisters, for those in Christ, this record will not be counted against them. For Christ has paid the penalty for them. That is the good news of the gospel. For those who believe upon Christ, who trust in Him, this record of all of our debts, of all of our transgressions, will not be counted against us because Christ has paid for them. He has taken our place. Better yet, Christ has also given us His record, His list. He has given it to us. His righteousness is is received by us when we believe upon Him. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is good news, brothers and sisters. That is very good news. Christ has set aside this record of debt that was against us. He has nailed it to the cross. He has atoned for our sins. Better yet, Christ gives us His record. It is the great exchange. Christ has bore our sins and we have been clothed in His righteousness. This is true for all who have faith in Christ.
What a wonderful gospel this is. It's to be believed. We're to run to God through faith in Christ and not away from Him. What should we do in response to these things? Above all, I must exhort you to abandon all hope in yourself and to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. You are not righteous before God. Far from it, you have a great debt to pay. God has books and you are in the red. Those accountants amongst us will appreciate that. You are in the red. But Christ has paid the debt for all who believe upon Him. More than that, He also gives us His righteousness. So turn from your sins, confess them to the Lord, see them for what they are, and trust in Christ alone. And if you are in Christ, then you are to give all glory to God, knowing that you are in Christ and have His righteousness, not because of something good in you, or because of some good thing that you have done. Truth be told, you and I are no different from the rest of humanity. We too have a record of debt. What makes the difference then is this, it is the grace of God. For if you have believed upon Christ, it is because God did write your name in His book of life before the foundation of the world. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, brothers and sisters. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Where is there room for boasting then? There is no room at all. For it is all owed to the grace of God. He has simply been merciful to us. There is nothing more to say. You are in Christ today, believing upon Him, because God has shown you mercy. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31. Christian, it is not that you are without a record of debt, but it is that God, by His grace, does not hold that record of debt against you. It is He who blots out your transgressions for His own name's sake and does not remember your sins. Isaiah 43, 24 and 25. Indeed, we agree with Micah the prophet when he says, Who is a God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. This is what Christ has accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Let's go now to prayer through faith in him. Father in heaven, We thank you for the warnings that your word does present to us concerning hell. Lord, help us to talk of it carefully and with winsomeness. Lord, help us to talk of it, not to produce fear and to try to promote good behavior, but rather to warn so that men and women would be sober concerning their sin. Help us to talk of it so that we might point to Jesus, who is the Christ, our Lord and Savior. That is my prayer, Lord, that even those who are here today, uh, that they would think carefully about these things. If there are some who do not yet know Christ, some perhaps who have been in the church for a long time, 
but who have been trusting secretly in their own righteousness, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to faith. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to open their eyes, that they might see the severity of their sin and what it does deserve. Open their eyes that they might see Christ for who He is. Open their ears, Lord, so that they might hear the gospel, perhaps for the first time in all of its power, that though we deserve eternal destruction, Christ has provided salvation through us by taking our sins upon Himself and giving us His righteousness if we believe upon Him. Lord, help all who are here to believe this truly into the heart. We thank You for Your mercy and grace. Lord, we deserve none of it, but You have shown us compassion. Lord, may we respond to You by loving You and serving You and worshiping You with all that we are. It's in Christ's name that we say these things, and all of God's people do say, Amen.